Hiya, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. So it's Jeff and I this week with Canadian architect Cedric Burgers. It's a long conversation, this one, which I've edited down as much as I can. So apologies. To be fair, we could be criticised for being a bit self-indulgent with this one. I suppose because we are. We didn't have a plan, but really it ended up being a long conversation about cultural difference or the difference in approaches to building design from a sustainability perspective, embracing passive house, what's motivated that, all that sort of thing. I mean, we're very happy to give the platform over to him because he's an interesting fella. Like He's a man on a mission. He's a, a genial evangelist for sustainable building design. So it felt like it was a an opportunity to have a, a conversation which we found really interesting, so we, we hope you do too. Like we covered a lot, his position as a, an advocate for getting ahead of regulation, his backstory, training in Berlin, working with star architects, the difference in approach politically and systemically between North America or his part of North America and where we are in Western Europe, how status tends to drive building design and how even when you're focused on sustainability, you do have to think about people-centered design, livability, aesthetic. Lots of themes I'm sure you're all familiar with, but we found ourselves having a, an interesting conversation, so we thought we'd share it with you. Just one heads up, the sound quality is not the best on this one. So if you're an audiophile, to be fair, you might want to skip it. I mean, I've just sat here editing it for hours and I got quite used to it quite quickly. Just a little bit scratchy at points. We tried to clip everything we could to make it as well as we could, but it is what it is. So I'll leave it at that and let you get into it. Thank you for joining us. Hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Um, but I was just going to finish, like, Woden was a very large black Newfoundlander dog. I don't know if you have those in England or in Great Britain, but they are... And Ireland, excuse me. Oh, sorry. Oh, God. Yeah, yes. get it straight. Jesus. Well, you you, you have... I know you I have was life over there in the United States, Cedric, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. Hey, look, I got... Anyway, okay, let me finish. Jesus. <laughs> so. Voden was this really big black Newfoundlander, and we and and uh, my parents wanted to be Canadian. They really wanted to be Canadian. So, you know, coming from Holland, that meant these things. It meant getting a Newfoundlander, which is a very Canadian dog. It looks like a huge black bear, uh, and they're they're they were bred to pull ships along the shore and rescue people from the water and stuff like that. It meant getting um, listening to country music and getting a chainsaw. <laughs> well, they all seem to go together. Well, the idea of why Canadians would want a dog that looks like a bear, I mean, that's got to cause a lot of... of oh, it's it's true, right? Confusion. Yeah. They, they And it did look like a bear. It scared the bejesus out of everyone because it's it's huge <laughs> yeah. and black and shaggy and stinky and needed way too much exercise. Yeah. So when I was young, it went to the farm. And my parents were like, oh, no, he's gone to a farm. He's, that's a way better place for him. Now I realize what that means, you know, all these years later. Oh, your parents must have been so disappointed with you adopting these European moors, right? shifting to passive house instead of big <laughs> carbon-intensive building impositions on the landscape. They couldn't ever shake being Dutch. My dad's gone, but my mom is still around. She still works with us, actually, but they're still... I mean, I think that it's like to their core, they're, they're, she is still... Dutch. She's very abrupt, to the point, charming, hardworking, and just rubs people the wrong way all the time. It's amazing. <laughs> I, I love working with Dutch people because <laughs> you always know where you stand with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. My dad, classically, married. my wife had just given birth to our second daughter and my dad came over and, and, and said, Jesus, you look awful. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and he's also, he was also known to say, you look fat. And, uh, but in a way that was completely truthful, it was not uh, meant to be a personal attack. It was just an observation. And, uh, and luckily, Mary, God bless her, being a very fixed skin, uh, took it the right way. And she's like, okay, no problem. Have a coffee. I look terrible today. Well, and then the next day she puts some makeup on and he said, you look amazing. And so that was, that was the start of their relationship. Well, I think that, you know what, actually, Dan talks a lot about um, toxic positivity at the end of each episode of this podcast about, you know, needing, because the algorithm only, you know, whatever it is, we need only five star reviews or whatever but it's a problem toxic positivity you know because you lose all content yeah. obviously you know i'm not yeah. saying it's it's obviously that can be an excuse for bad behavior but yeah. we do need some you know obviously in in her case i'm sure it was much more meaningful you know or, or, or anybody that your dad encountered if he if, who knew him well you know and if he said something decent to them it, it, it obviously must have carried more resonance you know yeah but it's such a cultural difference right because if you grow up with people being frank and honest about just bodily issues and stuff like that, then you're used to it, then it's okay. But if you grow up in this coddled environment, I'm being judgmental, but there's a tendency to get very quickly offended by by things. And I mean, that's the culture that we live in, for sure, in Canada. Yeah. It, there's a, it has to be, everything has to be on the up and up, and we accept everything and, and anything. Well, and, I want to uh, apply this to building, though. It's, it's more about, you know, uh, being able to be disarmingly honest about where we are at um as an industry yeah. and what's wrong with it with it with it, yeah. with it and, with, and with the kind of grotesque uh practice of the industry rather than people's appearances we'll say you know? yeah well you'd think yeah. but if that were the case we wouldn't necessarily have the same challenges that we have now like people haven't been willing to face up to the realities of our situation they're not yeah. willing to accept the direct and that's just not just a north american thing although the north american thing is particular Folk don't well, like I think, I, yeah, I think you'd need to get a psychologist involved in that <clears throat> and answering that question about why people do the wrong thing. And I mean, my own experience is that people always choose or often choose status over the right thing. So, and it's, you know, sim in our, in our houses, it was constantly, a, you know, a choice between, oh, let's do the right thing. Let's put uh, ground source heat pumps in and let's put solar panels on and let's put triple pane glass. And then, you know, when it comes down to it, a bigger, flashier house with a three-car garage and putting more money into status symbols was always the default choice. And this and this got to be um, quite frustrating because you would line it up and, and you would basically show that there's so little difference in when you take into operating costs and all the rest of it between ground sort heat pumps and, and a gas-fired furnace like you just... It, it makes so much sense and we do all the math and then inevitably it, in the decision was always always for luxurious items and that that's like beating your head against the wall right and you know we're a service industry so i have to ultimately i have to you know do what my clients wish of me but you know we tried to make those arguments as as much as we could that was where kind of passive house really stepped in for for me because it's not something you can just take out of the budget at the very last minute it is hardwired into the dna of the home efficiency is and when you start the conversation with clients in the beginning and, and do all the math they can't at the end delete it because guess what it's done 
you put the insulation underneath your slab already. You, you've committed to it. And uh, the other thing that I find very compelling about it is that it's so simple. Like it's, it distills green principle sustainability down into virtually a single element, a single goal. And achieving that goal for a cost effective, in a cost effective manner is um, very understandable for people like, you know, these laundry list style um, certification programs like LEED. And I'm, I'm not dissing it. I think it still has its place wherever it is. But I, it, it, it was so easy to, to just pull that apart. And now I'm talking about single family homes. I'm not talking about commercial buildings or multifamily or things like this that, that have like knowledgeable clients that have done this before. I'm talking about like one off single family homeowners that are like wild cats and they're hard to manage, but they're the ones that grasp onto things very quickly. And now, in fact, what I'm finding is that the reverse has happened. They, they commit to it very early on in like it's embedded in the project. And by the time we get to, to costing, other things have to go. Finishes on the outside, uh, finishes on the inside, expensive millwork and cabinetry, they have to go in favor of just making and the you know the budget work and so it's kind of done a bit of an about face for me and that's why i i love it quite frankly it's it's really helped us to achieve our sustainability goals anyway that's that's great uh, yeah. that's, that's a bit of a rant but that's where we're at no it's a very interesting and positive change to see i think we should yeah. start off by asking you very simply who are you and why why should we be Talking why? Why? Is, yes. <laughs> why? 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 Why am I wasting my time with you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'll get right to the point. So I'm an architect. I'm a registered architect in Canada, in British Columbia, Vancouver, which is the wild, woolly West Coast here, full of trees and uh, lots of space. And um, I grew up in an architectural family. My uh, parents ran a boutique architectural firm. They, my dad was a, a trained architect from Delft. Um, very brilliant man. He had very strong opinions about many things, but m most of all, the, the, he, he loved Dutch culture. But I mean, after the war, there just wasn't much hope to stay in Holland. So he worked as a planner for many years in South Holland and, uh, you know, oversaw some of the redevelopments of the, of the bomb cities post World War II. And then just realized, I think, sometime in the late 60s that he and, and my mom really wanted a fresh start. They wanted to go somewhere where they could carve out a whole new beginning. And so they came to Canada. Uh, long story short, they ended up owning their own firm and running their own project. So they realized that that being immigrants, they would always be on the outside. And as immigrants do, and then they start their own companies and start building their own homes if they're architects or builders or whatever. And it's a way of generating enough uh, money to survive, but also of kind of carving out a, a place in society. You can't get in on any public projects, as I'm sure it's true in all parts of the world, unless you have very deep roots. And so, you know, he, my dad worked his, they worked their tail off. We, we grew up, we built 14 different homes uh, with my parents. We, uh, we were always working on weekends. So we were building as kids, we were constructing and managing job sites, basically doing rubbish removal and, and gardening and landscaping and, and hauling of soil and stuff like that. But that was just a, as a way to build these these homes that they were building, which were, by the way, quite radical, beautiful Dutch 
uh, houses in the distill style, like planes and surfaces and uh, and uh, sort of a brutalist modernism um, that was very refreshing in this kind of post-endemy woodsy world of the West Coast. So it was very interesting to, to, to have that experience and to be part of building. And so, you know, I always knew growing up that that was kind of an inevitable for me, that that's going to be my direction. And, uh, and so when I went, I went to school at UBC and uh, essentially went abroad, uh, worked in Berlin for a few years um, during my studies, worked for Daniel Liebeskind, who's a famous um, Jewish American, yeah, Jewish American I mean, architect. He needs no introduction to anybody who has any, oh, okay. it's an architecture yeah. really. You know, yeah, yeah. Architect, rather. Yeah. yeah, he's a star architect. Yeah, and I and I so I worked for him for a while in um, in Berlin, and also worked for a landscape, a uh, very famous German landscape company. You didn't uh, work on the. Uh, I'm taking. I'm assuming you didn't work in the Holocaust Museum, did you? Yes. Yes. You did. Um, and also, wow. um, yeah, it was amazing, and uh, and the garden. So I ended up because they didn't have enough to do. It was Daniel Liebeskind's first project ever. Uh, in the world. And he had done a lot of theoretical work and worked for a lot of universities, but they didn't have much work after that. So we did a bunch of competitions. Then I went to work for uh, Müller Knipschel Weberg, landscape architects in Berlin. And they, and that was on um, the gardens for the, uh, uh, the Holocaust Museum. So they had done some sculptural gardens. So really neat to be part of that. But I ended up having to make a decision whether or not I was going to become a registered architect or just keep floating around the world, you know, doing those things. And so I, I came back to Canada, got registered in our family firm as an architect and had to relearn essentially everything uh, from the Canadian perspective, because as a student and going abroad, you you kind of have these these very big experiences and then learning how to do things here was very important. Now, my thesis at architecture school was a, a large sort of land development. Um, and it was a, it was uh, focused on uh, sustainable principles and, and uh, water use and, and that sort of thing. And because I was, I was very interested in that. Um, after having my European experience, I went, I worked with a fellow named Patrick Condon. He's, he was my professor, a mentor at school, and he he introduced me to all the issues surrounding water. And he was a landscape architect and, and how we deal with stormwater, essentially. Uh, you know, and California is a classic example of this. He, he knew this 20 years ago, 25 years ago, that California was in big trouble, and they are. Um, you've heard about some of the droughts that they've been having, and, and then the flash floods, and they have no way of containing the water, and it all drains out. Uh, you know, out to the ocean in these gigantic swales. So that was very much on my mind when I joined the firm. And we worked on a, a, a factory for Fryby Gourmet Foods, which is a meat processing facility. And, and I introduced Patrick into the project as a way of managing stormwater on the site and water that fell on the roof, water that fell in the parkades and the parking lots and how it's got heavy metals in it. And there was a stream, a, a, a creek that ran around the property. It's a, we're talking about 140,000 square foot uh, food processing plant, which is, what is that, 14, 13 or 14,000 square meters of food processing. Anyway, it was, uh, we, we looked at biofiltration and I started to, to understand the practical, uh, sustainable architecture and how wonderful it could be that there's this ecology that we can be part of. That was kind of our first project that put the firm on the map. We won many awards for that project, including a lieutenant governor award and um, 
like made a little carved a little niche out for ourselves um that's how that started now i'm wandering a little bit in my thinking where your question okay. was, i, I want to ch- yeah. jump in for a second actually while i can yeah I uh, I experienced the Holocaust Museum. I went there with with mm-hmm. my wife and some friends. Uh, God, ten years ago or more. Yeah, years ago or something like that. And had this profoundly, you know, moving uh, experience as as you do. It, it's an extraordinary building, I have to say, yeah. uh, and the gardens too. Um, but we we went quite late in the day. Mm. This relates to Stormwater and the Holocaust Museum. That's why it's kind of weirder. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I, I was expecting it to be a Jeff getting stuck in a toilet story. Oh God! <laughs> uh, we'll say that for another time. Um, yeah. So um, this one—it was the end of the day when we were leaving. They were kind of turfing everyone out or closing the building down, and it so happened that when we left, with this kind of startling experience rattling around in our heads, the heavens opened in the kind of rain that hurts, you know, and. There was no shelter of any kind around. Uh, now we none of us drove. Um, this is pre-smartphone, uh, so it must have been 2008, something like that. Um, no trees, no bus shelters, nothing like that. So we end we ended up we were absolutely just saturated completely, and uh, we ended up hailing down a taxi and uh, asking the driver who didn't speak much English. Uh, of course, we didn't. We were in a in a, in a non English city. It was of course it was up to us to speak German, um, but um, we ended up asking him to find us a, a pub so we could go and kind of regather. And he took us to it's as I recall it, the Holocaust Museum is in a kind of a business district, so um, he couldn't think of anywhere. And the first place he thought of was this big gigantic i think turkish restaurant and it was a cavernous massive place the kind of place that has uh oversized laminated menus with badly taken photographs of the meals on them yeah and we were no one else there we were the first ones there um and um but the girls went downstairs to kind of dry off to the toilet or whatever and and i ordered thinking we're in berlin some berliner vice beers right and mm-hmm. um, so and the, they came out with these brandy glass style glasses for the beer with a lager with a massive big fucking dollop of raspberry jam. <laughs> and it just felt to me like it was part of this sensory experience. You know, you go through uh, having your your mind melted through the atrocities of the uh, of the Holocaust. <laughs> you go outside into the elements and get physically bum- assaulted like that. And then you have this absolutely offensive drink. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for that. It's etched into my brain forever. Yeah, it's an amazing city, isn't it? I mean, the, it's so culturally diverse. I lived in the in the Turkish area of of Berlin because I didn't have any money, and so it was it was great living down there. The shawarma, I love it. It's a fantastic city, and I love its kind of its uh, its gr- grubby kind of side as well. And you know, and yeah. the, res- the residue of the past there. It's fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, so that's that was that was the the experience in Germany, and um, also I mean, it helped. When in about, I think 2015, 2016, after, you know, a few years of practice and some working on many dozens of single family homes and multifamily projects, I, I was introduced to the idea of passive housing through a friend of my, Tomas Stich. He's a Slovenian uh, engineer and he, he's sort of on our, in our neck of the woods. He lives in the mountains out here, but, um, I met him and he said, well, you should, you should come and do my course. And so I did. I was blown away by both the depth of the passive house program and the simplicity of it. 
right? So it was it was an incredibly rigorous standard and all sorts of things. Like it, it just appealed to me on so many levels because it was it was just so simple to understand in the end, but also very, very difficult to achieve. And it it's it felt right. And so that's when I went started to go to the conferences in in Germany. I hung out with Wolfgang Feist and um, asked all sorts of pokey questions like, can we still have wood burning fireplaces and passive houses and things? And met a lot of really brilliant people who had figured out all sorts of ways to make high performance, high efficiency homes. Um, and then all the industry. I think this is really what I appreciate so much about Europe is that the the industry that's been set up in Germany, Austria. Holland, um, Belgium, wherever, Nor- Dor- Norway and Denmark. I don't know about Ireland and, and Great Britain because I don't, I'm sure it's the same, but I, I couldn't believe how many window manufacturers, for instance, they had in, in a very small area, all competing against each other and all producing passive house certified windows. And you go to these, these passive house, com- have you been to them? Um, I'm sure you have, but, uh, they're, they're incredible. They're like these, these halls full of, these passive house components and all this innovation and even down to the very, very small things. You know, we would go and visit some of the cross laminated timber, timber manufacturers. And then there was these other ones that were just way out there that were, weren't even using any glue and they were making dowel laminated timbers. And I, oh, I was yeah. like, Brett Stoppel. That's what that's called. The, the, the method of it is called Brett Stoppel. Oh, is it? Yeah. 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 It's a method, dowel based timber, mass timber construction. Yeah. 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 And uh and and I was like, they're taking it so seriously that they're even they're even thinking about the step beyond um you know demolition and how how do you recycle the materials? Well, you can't recycle them if it's full of uh, you know epoxy based glues or whatever it is. <laughs> like it has to be something that can be easily disassembled. And it makes so much sense. Like that, you know, that so then coming back to our North American context, it's um it's very disheartening when we we don't even know that this world exists. Like I have the feeling that going to these places is leaping 30 years into the future and being and and learning that it's not just the program, it's not just the thinking behind the spreadsheets, and it's not just the intellectuals, it's all of the industries that have come out of it as well. So they so energy being the apex predator, whatever you, you know, we can get into that later, but the, the industries and then the smaller industries and then the, 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 the people that work in construction all kind of like supporting the whole thing. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing. We are so far behind where we are in Canada. We have one passive certified window manufacturer in our beautiful neck of the woods. There's only one. They, they can charge whatever they want. And so, and then we have, we just lost one of our CLT manufacturers. They went bankrupt. So I think we have one CLT manufacturer left in British Columbia, which you've seen British Columbia, but it is all trees the whole entire province is gigantic trees we we can't stop things from growing on the on this the temperate rainforest of the west coast so it's it's um it feels like an yeah but you took so you you traveled the world you had a background in architecture and building to begin with and you you underwent this damascene conversion like yeah boy i see the light 
And then you take it home to a country where no one's really interested. Like, as you said at the start, like, you know, renovations driven by status as mm-hmm. much as anything else. It's not, yeah. not usually about making the world a better place. It's making no. a little piece of the world a better place for a person with a lot of money in their pocket. Yeah. And yeah. you were working with a an established practice. Yeah. And architecture isn't an industry that particularly likes change. You know, no. it's one of those professions like medicine where you've got to wait for a uh, a generation of the older heads to die to let the the next generation really truly be born. And yeah. what you've been doing is chipping away at that. You've taken this really interesting European experience, your appreciation of this innovation, and you've taken it home and you've converted, you've redesigned your architectural practice. And I think this yeah. is a process that an awful lot of people are beginning to embark on now. Yeah. Like in a, a in a set of conditions in Europe where they are much more conducive to this sort of change, but also yeah. in North America where they're in a similar situation to yourself where it's it's not easy. Like there are an awful lot more steps. Like when we you and I spoke, you mentioned the the fact that you're working on projects now where you've got to build in lead times to import a lot of the parts from Europe yeah. to yeah. make the project work. So I mean, yeah. how did you how did you go about this process of converting your practice? How did you get the people on board and the clients as well? Jesus. Yeah. Well, you make it sound like I'm altruistic. I'm not. Um, I I think what what we're seeing on uh, to a certain degree, it, but what we what was hap- what's happening on in Canada and on the West Coast is that we are Vancouver has ambitions to be the greenest city in the world. And so what does that mean? So we have a building code here um, that that is kind of old. It's 20, 30 years old. And so they, Vancouver said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to introduce this thing called a step code. So every two years or three years, we're going to be moving up one step in terms of energy efficiency. And they define that. And so they started at sort of a code built home, let's say at step one, their ambitions were by 2032, we're going to be at step six, which is passive. And so everyone's like, oh, well, that was that started to happen in 2017. I think people thought, okay, 15 years is such a long time. We don't really have to worry about this. We can sort of gradually step up. Well, it's accelerated. And so when I when I first started to think about this, I started to look at what the step code meant, and it was its focus was on energy, right? Energy efficiency, and you had to prove compliance to this. And so what made sense to me was well, if this is inevitable and you're not going to get a building permit in 2032 unless you are building to the passive house standard, why don't we just jump ahead and get there now? Because then we'll be ahead of our competition. And so that's what I did. It's all well and good doing that, but yeah. getting people on board with it and making it work for you. Yeah. That's another matter altogether. Yes, it is. However, there's a, there's something else that happens though, because I truly believe that inherent in every human being, there's a will to be part of something that is bigger and better than who we are. And I think that when something like this comes along and there's an opportunity and it makes sense. And uh, for my staff and for my clients, I say, this is an opportunity to be, to be part 
of the future. People get excited about that. I think that people are, my staff especially, are are tired of just churning out the same thing. And when they, when, when you realize that there's a better way of doing something and it's convincingly better and demonstrably better, then I think people get excited about it. So it hasn't been very hard to do because I, I say to my staff, like, look, if we, if you get your training done, if you do your passive house introductory course or whatever it's called, you get that done. You know, in a couple of years, you know, when there's a conference, I'll send you to the conference so you can have that experience. And so that's an exciting thing for them. They get to go away on the company's dime. It's been a big investment, right? So we have to pay to train them. They are excited to do it. But once they drink the Kool-Aid, they become the pushers. Like they, they start bringing me stuff that I have no idea even existed. You know, there's, there's all of these converts out there. In our, we've got eight staff, right? So they're, they're out there thinking about ways of doing things and it's across the board. So I, 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 it hasn't been that hard, to be honest. It's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, one small example is that, um, uh, Isabel, she's a French architect. She's in our office and she, she discovered that in Revit, there are some native life cycle analysis tools in Revit. I had no idea. I mean, Revit's a very powerful, expensive program. And we we changed our office to that too, by the way. So that was part of it. Because if we're going to be doing these buildings, we need to be using the best tools available. So Revit was for us a big switch. And she discovered this. And now she is pushing life cycle analysis in our office, which we are so far off of. It's not even funny, but it's, it's on our minds and it's, it's, you know, one day we'll, we'll figure out how to make it all happen. So I, you know, in response to your question, I think that that's, that's, what's been really exciting about it is that it's, that's on the staff side, on the client side, um, nobody knew about it 10 years ago. Pretty much everybody knows about it now because of the code changes that are happening in Vancouver. And what's happened also is that they've accelerated those changes so that the, the goal by 2032, we're already at step five and it's 2023. So we've only got one step. Step five is our sort of minimum standard now. We're, we're three or four, five years ahead. They've kind of, the, the municipalities have realized that it's, it has to happen. It has to happen a whole lot quicker. And so they're enforcing it. And I love it because what it means for us is that we've already done all the homework. We're already up to our necks in this and we're ready for it. Uh, other people are just catching on to it. And uh, I think and we're reaching a, a point now, uh, sorry for getting yeah. off, but I think we're reaching a yeah. point now where it's going properly mainstream. And I say that, yeah. my wife pointed out to me the other day that um, the, the Guardian had, had done a review, a five-star review on this new TV show on Netflix called The Curse, mm. which uh, Emma Stone, you know, the uh, did she win the Academy Award for Best Actress, did she, Dan? For, oh, no. for I don't remember that. It's, yes. it's Paramount. Yes. It's not Netflix, though. Just sorry, in Paramount. case anyone yeah, goes yeah, yeah. Sorry, 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 sorry. Not Netflix. Yeah, <laughs> Paramount. Yeah, so we have Paramount. We have a couple of these things. Yeah, um, it's her and uh, Nathan Fielder and the, the fellow behind Uncut Gems. Um, that uh, the Fardy Brothers. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, they play uh, a married couple in this 
underprivileged uh, New Mexico town. I've forgotten the name of it now. It's near Taos. Um, I know a fellow, fellow from there who's, who's amazing. Yeah. They've made a TV show about this place. Um, uh, they're, they're filming a show is what the, the, the setup of it. And uh, Emma Stone plays the daughter of a slum landlord who's trying to be terribly positive and sustainable um, by going in and retrofitting homes in this area um, to the passive house standard, bizarrely. Um, and they interview within the show uh, a fellow by the name of Hans Feist, who is the president of Passive House Society. <laughs> Believe it or not. So it's, I'm not sure how Passive House is going to come out in it. I, I don't think there's been, there'll be any particular criticism of the standard per se, but certainly yeah. a couple who are, who are, uh, who are, advocating it and who are going in yeah. and trying to re- retrofit homes to the standard um are um there may be some unintended consequences from their perspective of uh and their their ideas may not be that well received you know yeah. uh in certain regards but it's it's that for me is kind of a an extraordinary moment if you've got a standard like passive house um yeah. being featured in a, in a in a show like that it's uh it's telling you something you know yeah. And, and I love it. That's, uh, you know, it's, it's because it's so, it's such a simple thing to understand. But the, the other thing is clients, it's become sort of a, a luxury standard for them, not a luxury standard, but a, a way of differentiating them themselves from their friends if they have a passive house, right? So it's a, it's a symbol, it's a status symbol, basically. And, and building to that standard is, um, you know, is, is something that they proclaim quite loudly to, to people that, that are interested. And, you know, I look back at how electric cars have come along and I think it's very similar to that. Electric cars are very simple. They're very easy to understand. It's a shift in our mentality. People will not, some people will never adopt it, but it's, it's happening. In a few years, it's going to be the only thing people drive in, in Vancouver. It's there everywhere. So it's been wonderful to see that happen. And I think that we're going to see that same transformation happen with homes, especially because um, they're removing all the gas stations in Vancouver. Uh, so there's only one, like you imagine a major metropolitan city, three, three million people that live in Vancouver, like downtown Vancouver has got one gas station. That's how, that's how much the politicians want to get rid of it. But that, that transformation that we've witnessed with cars, when I look at it, you know, the electric car industry started with the most luxurious cars. And it's because the, the reality is that the people that kind of like drive, it, I'm going to get vilified for this. So I'm just going to say it, but I think I have to say this with, with delicacy because I believe that the people that drive taste forward and sort of status symbols forward are the people that can afford those electric cars. And they became something that everyone aspired to. And then the more affordable ones came afterwards and became a mass market object. And the same is true of high performance houses is that they are still a luxury item and they're still very much for the elite and i'm doing i'm saying this very consciously because i truly believe that this is the way that we have to make change is that we have to appeal to the people that you know, the people that can drive that change forward and it has to start from the people that can afford to do it because it's expensive to do it 
now. As the industry adapts, it'll be less expensive. But right now, it's an expensive status symbol. And so this is the strategy behind, well, at least my strategy behind how to get. Yeah, well, I, you, you probably have to edit 90% of what I just said out because it sounds No, there's very, nothing controversial no, no, no. in that. No, uh, no, no, it's no. not quite the same as it is here. Um, it's a slightly yeah. different setup here. That does apply to it. And, and that that's what you're talking about is is the essence yeah. of, of marketing as well in ways, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, well, but... But go on, you're, you're describing how economic power flexes there yeah. rather than status. It's like how yeah. technology solved problems that tech bros wanted solved. Like yeah. it, it doesn't solve problems that people actually have. It, it yeah. works out. If you can't be bothered cooking for yourself or don't have the time to cook, it works out how to get food delivered to you more quickly. You know, hence the proliferation of app delivery apps or shopping apps. Right. But, with passive house and high performance building, like where it's quite different, I think, is you're seeing money or you're seeing innovation at both ends of the market. Yeah. So a funny thing about the car situation is electric cars originally, and this is when I say originally, I don't mean the original ones where they were vying the with 80s. petrol cars. They're from the 1880s, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when when uh, Alex loves telling this story about how electric cars were they almost became the de facto form of automobile transport except for a marketing campaign which emasculated the electric car in favor of the pain in the ass petrol or whatever oil-based uh combustion engine where you had to be a masculine man who turned the crank on the front of the car you had to have the oh. physical power to be able to do that and so oh. a a model of masculinity was sold which made the petrol car or whatever it was more desirable. And then you fast forward to the, I don't know, the noughties. If you remember, you had loads of Hollywood celebrities knocking about driving Priuses, mm-hmm. like hybrid cars. That was that was the stepping stone. And then a man like Elon Musk earns a big chunk of cash and decides, I'd love to, I'd love to drive a, a, an electric car, but I don't want anyone thinking I'm gay. That sort of horrific, toxic masculinity. What I really need is one of those awful performance cars. I need it to be an electric car, which is the apocryphal or proverbial penis extension. Mm. Otherwise, I can't drive one. Da-da, mm. Tesla, which had which set out on its business model exactly as you described for, for houses. Like pick up the big money tickets, make the big impact there, which is a, a positive strategy. We had Kit Knowles on to talk about, he talked about that when he joined us, where the people who are the most wasteful and profligate in terms of energy are the people who have mm-hmm. the biggest houses. And they don't have to worry about the cost in terms of cash. So, mm-hmm. all right, fix them, and you fix a big chunk of emissions. Tesla was supposed to do that with cars by fixing the big ticket cars and using the profits generated from that to pay for middle market cars to be generated. Anyway, getting back onto building, it's been driven by fuel poverty and social housing as much as big ticket items in the UK and Ireland. Yeah. And I dare say in other areas where... Yeah, the, the most prolific builder probably of passive houses in Ireland to date 
uh, I would say one of the most anyway would be Dunleary Rathdown. The the, the 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 council itself has built and, re- and retrofitted the passive house standards, um, and um, you know loads of councils and and uh, housing associations in the UK have as well, um, because they're noticing the, the the benefits in terms of you know reduced rent arrears and void rates and 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 maintenance costs and and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so it is. It is driving it, uh, and it's um, it's a funny one though because um, uh, what you're talking about, this idea about about uh, making it sort of aspirational, there's there is really something in it. And I, I've said before in the podcast, I cannot get my head around the fact that the wealthiest people in society often, for for no good reason, live in what must be terribly uncomfortable buildings that are, you know, actually difficult to to, to achieve the kind of quality of life they might expect. And feel entitled to, uh, so that I think is a, is a strange thing. From you know, uh, it's not just people living in stately homes that are horrifically leaky because they were built three hundred years ago. This yeah, is like poorly designed people- new homes where where uh, you you know you've got uh, like for instance the architectural trope of the kind of um, the massive uh, double height glazed sort of south or southwest facing part of a building with no opening windows, you know, and mm. a greenhouse that you're going to kind of cook people in, you know. And you've got heating systems and cooling systems trying to wrestle wrestle with the buildings, trying to achieve an equilibrium. That's that's no way to live. That you know, it, yeah. it reminds me of um, uh, Steve Jobs um, dying of an eminently treatable cancer because he surrounded himself with idiots, you know, with 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 <laughs> gurus basically, and and eschewed uh, actual science. <laughs> Treating cancer with juice. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> You know, um, because there's no grown-ups in charge, and and or or rather that lots of the people who 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 get into positions of authority and power um, actually um, are surrounding themselves with with people who may may sound compelling but don't know what they're talking about. You know? Yeah, Sorry. yeah, yeah. You touched on a few things when you say that, and one of them strikes me is you know you getting back to what's happening in the UK with passive house. It's very different from what's happening here. Yours is energy driven you you mentioned the word energy poverty which is a super interesting we don't have that I- issue where we live we have plentiful energy and it's very inexpensive relative to what you pay in Europe our our energy on the west coast comes from hydro so we call it hydro but it's damming rivers and generating electricity and sending it to different places and we sell a lot of it to our brothers across the border in uh, Oregon Washington and California we have plentiful, relatively green, and that's arguable, but it's relatively green energy. And uh, whereas I think where you are, you're mostly coal fired, aren't you? Still, or, or uh, no? It's changing. Maybe is gas it? fired. Yeah. Um, gas probably, fired. Yeah. Even, even that is even yeah. that is changing. Yeah. And by the way, UK yeah. and Ireland. Sorry. <laughs> oh, UK and Ireland. Sorry. <laughs> okay. But I mean, Ireland, I is, Ireland is well ahead of the UK on an awful lot of these matters. But it is interesting yeah. that we've had periods where renewables were providing the majority of electricity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And in Ireland, too, the, the, the renewables are growing at a rate of knots, uh, mainly, mainly wind. You know, a bit of PV, but mainly wind. And do you? And and they're they're building new um, nuclear powered stations also in the UK. I understand that that's that's happening too now. Is that commissioned them? Like whether they ever get built or not? I mean, the the UK seems to be showing itself to be fundamentally inadequate in terms of managing a state at the moment. Cancelling vital transport infrastructure. I think we've committed to spending. an unholy amount of money, an unnecessarily unholy amount of money. Um, yeah. 
to I can't remember it might be China uh or we might have had to rescind those plans because they were too Chinese dependent I forget right but yeah I mean it's taken so long that they're not going to be delivered in time to make the sort of difference that we need them to in terms of meeting our climate targets right right yeah. We'll get we'll still to do. Ireland. We won't. We won't actually do nuclear in Ireland, but we'll get. We just. We've just uh, uh, made progress with a big interconnector uh, to France, for instance, which is very heavily nuclear. You know, so we've we've amazing wind resources, and um, consequently a need to build buildings that are wind tight and airtight. So we we have a good ability to sell uh, renewable energy to our European neighbours, um, and um, uh, we need to kind of be trading two ways in that regard. You know. So yeah. if the cost of energy isn't a problem where you are, yeah. why why do people care about energy conservation? Because like this gets back to like the 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 framing statement you and I discussed about energy being the apex predator of building design. Yeah. Like once you become conscious of energy, it solves so many problems in a sort of uh what was it? Oh we use the uh, the the analogy of the wolves in Yellowstone Park. Right, like the reintroduction of the wolves fixed the ecology yeah. in a way yeah. that people didn't appreciate, and managing energy does in a similar way. But like, if you're not motivated to from a cost, why is why is it even happening where you are? Like, I'm glad it is. So, why is it happening? It's it's um well, first of all, it's mandated to happen. So I've I've talked about the code changes that are that are required to happen. So that's it's kind of being pushed by the government on one side, but it's being pulled by individuals on the other side because there's a general ethos in Vancouver and not amongst everyone, but to 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 be green and to and to preserve our nature um, as much as we possibly can as individuals. So the the people that are in the know and it, it's we live in a in a culture in Vancouver where everything happens outside of the city. So there's it's a it's quite a um, it's quite a dead city in terms of 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 nightlife and so forth. When when people want to experience the West Coast, so we go to the mountains, we go on boats sailing, we go and experience nature. So we're nature lovers, and we want to preserve that. And and there's a real push to have that preserved. We love our fishes, we love our oceans, we love our whales. We're surrounded by nature, and I think that's where it's coming from from the individual perspective. We're pulling that. But why would why is government why are the building codes be? Why is change being driven within the building code? Mm-hmm. Like why would they bother if they don't have to? Well, our energy is not free. It's just less expensive, right? So one of the things that, that the city of Vancouver has done is said that there's not going to be any more natural gas uh, being permitted in, in appliances or heating systems or, or, or fireplaces or anything. It's, you cannot install a natural gas fireplace anymore in Vancouver or propane fireplace or natural gas which is a good thing i i think that the the general awareness about what fracking has done to northern alberta you know so our natural gas comes from northern alberta and uh where they they you know i i'm sure you're familiar with what fracking is but it's a horrendous horrendous process of pumping 
um, high pressure water into the into the ground and and cracking it open to release natural gas, and it comes out of the ground as sour gas. And so we've just we've, we're just surrounded by these environmental disasters in our neighboring provinces. And British Columbia has said no, there's no need for it. The whole gas industry has been pushing it, um, and we don't want it anymore. It's bad for our health. It's bad for the environment. And uh, it, it's got to stop. And so the city of Vancouver has actually outlawed it. So we, we, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. You know, we we can still build wood high performance or high efficiency wood burning fireplaces uh, stoves. Essentially, they they've taken they're still permitted in in the city of Vancouver, which is um, interesting and and right. But gas think- has been altogether outlawed. Yeah, wood. Uh, the the view on that is kind of uh, on wood wood burning has changed here really, really recently because of the levels of emissions from a human health perspective from 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 burning biomass even from kind of clean cleaner kind of more efficient stoves yeah is troubling both for indoor air quality and outdoor air quality in fact you know oh, and if you think about it I mean yeah. like I like the idea of of a, a flame you know it, it's there's something I don't know what's some primal that are kind of uh, about it but setting things on fire. To stay warm in the place that you live and sleep in <laughs> doesn't seem like a very clever strategy, to be honest. Um, you know, yeah. But how do how does the question for me is how do we disassociate tens of thousands, maybe millions of years of evolution, where you know we associate the flickering light of flame with safety? How do we dis- disassociate that from our our lizard brain psyches, right? Because I think. There's a reason why um, people find it comforting. I mean, to your point, big deal, get over it. But it's there are some things that are so hardwired in our nature that they um, that they are going to be hard to give up. And and one of those is flame. It's it's a tough one to give up. I think as the father of an asthmatic kid as well, I would you know, and we, we go and stay with my um, right. my grandparents. Sorry, with his grandparents um, in in Wicklow, whatever, and and they. You know the, the the stove goes on, and you know he's more. You can you, you can see the change in him. You know uh, in terms of color. Oh, you know? yeah. So yeah, I I know what you mean. And there's an Oscar Wilde line. What is it? The burnt child loves the flame. You know, uh, there's an element of that I think etched into us. Um, <laughs> but I just think. Um, well, see, the thing is, like the flame inside the home hasn't been with us in evolutionary terms that long. Like no. Lloyd likes to cite. So Lloyd Alter, uh, one of our. Uh, co-host uh an occasional co-host was his own series of the podcast he tells a story about how the shift from an open fire from open fire cooking to an oven in the home was resisted again by very masculine men who wanted to to retain the the fire in the home but it was welcomely received by women who did much of the cooking because so many women burned to death or suffered serious injuries from cooking over open flame like that that we just never think about so it's not like it's not always in modern times it's not been seen as a sign of safety mm-hmm. i think there's ample opportunity to experience flames using waste wood like if we need that to be a part of our culture but so yeah. few people have that I, as a part well, the thing the, the reassuring thing with passive houses uh, in ireland at least it tends to be that where people have put stoves into passive houses they usually really end up being ornamental yeah, uh, yeah. because they're just not needed. And uh, like as Jay Stewart, another Canadian kind of friend of the podcast, but I think, I think the way he put it was that open fires 
they, they basically do a bad problem solving the problem, a bad job of solving the problem that they create. Um, in other words, they're about 30% efficient when in use. And like mine is 100% when not, you know, um, yeah, it's got a massive right. hole. Uh, a stove, uh, a sealed stove is a, is a different animal. But I mean, hasn't London, the, the mayor's office in London, we're talking about banning them altogether because of concerns about air quality. They're talking about banning them and mandating uh, air tightness and mechanical ventilation um, because of concerns about air quality. And we, the, the Guardian um, a few weeks ago published this interactive map of the world showing uh, PM 2.5 levels in particulate matter 2.5, the really small particulates uh, that you can come from, that come from burning things and from I think from you can get them from uh, rubber come rubber coming off tires, I believe as well. You know, basically everywhere is screwed. You know, uh, part unless you're in like parts of Sweden in Europe at least, uh, unless you're in parts of parts of Sweden or small remote parts of Scotland, nowhere has acceptable air quality. Uh, so I think a combination of not burning things, if you can, if we can encourage, give people a bloody picture of a fire you know uh it's look at that <laughs> um, and uh not burning things and then filtering uh the, the supply air into your building as well so you know is, is is a really good idea you know yeah well we have uh i mean you've got a very good point there we have um we have a big problem in the summers here because we've our, our wood industry has been basically uh, not done a great or lumber industry rather has not done a great job in in cleaning up the the forests in the way or managing the forests in a way that prevents forest fires. And so every with our summers getting warmer, we're getting more and more of these these horrendous smoky summers now. You know, towards August, you can see the fires and the smoke coming down into Vancouver, and it just blankets us in this in this horrible haze. And we've never, I've never experienced that. And you, you ask like, why, why are people interested? Because I think people are interested in, in, in doing something better because we're seeing immediate and direct results of our actions right now. We've, we've never had some of the hurricane strength winds and storms in Vancouver. And that's, it's, it's happening. And we're having, forest fires that are it's becoming forest fire season now in british columbia where are all of our our forests are, are are on fire it's a an environmental disaster so it's very present in everyone's mind that there is there are things that are changing very very quickly and that the ac- action needs to happen immediately to answer your question why do people even care in a in a low cost energy environment it's because of the other things that we're seeing that are happening do you think comfort comes into it in in terms of a of a passive house being a comfortable home to live in that is so when i when i sell or speak about passive house to clients now that is the that's health and comfort are are the focus of the conversation it's not about energy efficiency i, I truly believe that people either don't get energy efficiency or, or really even care about it. But everybody cares about health. You just mentioned your asthmatic, asthmatic son, right? And, uh, and everyone cares about comfort. And it's very, it's very easy to, to, to speak about the discomforts of a, of a leaky, inefficient home to our clients because you say, well, have you ever sat next to a single pane window when it's, cold outside oh yes we certainly have well that feeling of the warmth being pulled out of your body because of a cold window or wall those are gone you know there's there's no cold spots in the homes that we build they tend to overheat a little in the summer that's a problem so we we have to address that but there's they're never cold 
That's for sure. That feeling of comfort of the fresh air of and and small things like lack of smell, right? Yeah. Because of the because of the air exchanges that are happening on a continual basis, they never smell. Um, mm. When you walk inside the home, there's no there's none of that lingering smell of someone's cooking from a few days ago. They are they air. There's no mustiness or or dampness. They're dry. They're comfortable. They're warm and they're dead silent. And this is one of the eerie things because we built ourselves a, a passive house and it's got a suite in the basement and a suite for my mom upstairs if she ever moves in. And one of the eerie things is how quiet they are and how at night walking around, like getting up, say early in the morning, I, the first thing I notice is how loud the compressor is on the little beverage fridge that we have down in our kitchen. And I said, why did we choose something like that? And I look at the decibel ratings on it. It's, it's next to nothing, but it's mm. the loudest thing in the house. It's, it's crazy. And so I've gotten used to the fridge now. It doesn't, it's kind of blended into the background, but silence becomes this incredible, it, they're incredibly serene spaces to be in. And that's what's, really the selling feature for us is that the serenity and the feeling of comfort and a feeling of well-being how can you express that except by experiencing it well we try and we struggle as publishers to put this sense across for people and it's very difficult to do uh, it's one of the reasons we we like to wait when we're profiling a building until it's been occupied for a while uh, so yeah. we don't just get the architect's view and we try and talk to the occupants and we've one actually we're editing a magazine at the moment and another fellow who's been on the podcast uh barry mccarran who's the chair of the passive house association of ireland and he's just done a a deep retrofit a passive retrofit in fact certified passive house classic uh retrofit to a bungalow um in county monaghan and he lived in the house beforehand uh, so it's a great example um you know uh in that he's got the before and after experience and there's a line here of, of the new issue, which I just think is fantastic. Barry has no ego about him. So he's he's just disarmingly kind of engaging. Uh, he was talking about the living room pre the retrofit. He said, um, this is a direct quote, my bald head is fantastic for picking up drafts. I'm a Liverpool fan, Liverpool football club. I watched the Champions League at this time of the year. And in our old living room with a stove on, the temperatures could be as high as 35 degrees. But the draft from behind the curtains would turn you into a snowman. So my face would be melted, but the back of my head would be frozen. And I think those kinds of examples are fantastic to kind of make it meaningful to people. Yeah, we tr we all, we're always looking for those kinds of little nuggets to uh, to, to to try and bring this stuff to life. Um, yeah, I do want to pick up on the point you made about overheating. That's very interesting. Um, yeah. I presume I mean, your architecture for looking at your site, uh, the yeah. project I've seen is is beautiful, frankly, and it's wonderful that you're doing. Um, as I described it, you're one of these architects who's got the the polonek and the anoraks. You're good at the the nerdy stuff and and the the, the aesthetic stuff too, right? Um, which is great. Thank you. Um, yeah. Um, but more expressive passive houses like that that are quite can be, can be quite glassy up to a point. You have an overall overheating target to hit for the building. This ten percent uh, of the year. Um, yeah. Of no more than twenty five degrees Celsius. But I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. But um, but the point is, no, that, we're we're Celsius. We're oh, thank good. you for that, though. Yeah, great. thank you. Yeah, very good. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a, a back one back on on the UK Ireland thing. At least I didn't deny the whole, entire existence of your country, though. There you, go. <laughs> 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 you know. Um, but anyway, um, the the point is that uh, we have because it's an it's a whole house average. Uh, yeah. Thing, it is possible, you know, to have 
some rooms overheating quite a lot and uh, some the average being okay because you've got some that are much cooler. Is that perhaps what's happening? Um, in, and, and when you say overheating quite a lot, what do you mean? So let me let me put that into context. We we were we're our own guinea pigs in our house, right? So we we uh, I wanted to live it, breathe it, put all the solar panels on the roof, make it net zero, figure out everything from soup to nuts, how everything works. And so one of the things that was apparent when we were designing it is that we had a lot of we have a lot of west facing glass in our home, and um, uh, I thought that the trees. Uh, that border the property because they're they're deciduous trees. They, they would block it and then allow sunlight in the summer or in the winter. But what's actually happened is that the West Sun, the model was 100% correct. So when I modeled it in PHPP, it said that we were going to have a week or two of overheating in the summer. And I said, we can, we can live with that. I'm not going to put external shades on the windows. That is an option or cover like large extended uh, shades over, over our west facing patio. I thought I would live with it, but the model is correct. We do get one to two weeks of overheating at the end of the summer when it gets, you know, when it's 30, 35 degrees Celsius outside. We do get that. We it becomes twenty five to twenty seven degrees inside, well, that's, and that's, that's that's so it's so in other words, it's overheating within the the, the boundaries uh, predicted by PHP. Exactly. Okay. It's exactly one hundred percent correct. And I was warned about this, and I basically, for aesthetic reasons, didn't put the external shades on. They probably do have to go on, um, so I'm going to have to 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 sort that out. But that's. Um, it's not like there was a mistake. Let me let me put it that way. It was predicted. Had we taken that into account, it, we wouldn't be having that problem. But you have to sweat a bit for your beauty, basically. You have to sweat, yeah. and the basement stays the basement stays at a comfortable twenty one degrees Celsius, so we're we're fine. You know, there's an element of adaptability that human beings have to have. I I find that this this infatuation with uh, never exceeding twenty one degrees in the summer. Uh, in homes and, you know, never uh, dropping below 23 or 24 degrees in the wintertime inside. I, it's an obsessiveness that people have with their comfort that I don't, I, I grapple with it because I don't understand how we've become so limited in terms of our, our adaptable range of, of temperatures that we can't, we can't survive. And it's not the young kids. Kids, I find are very adaptable. They can sleep in very warm environments and they can, they, they don't mind cold homes. I think that parents and adults have this infatuation with, with never having any sort of discomfort. And I'm not suggesting that we kind of have to adapt to being uncomfortable, but I, I, I find it fascinating that well, we it's can. adaptive comfort though, actually. This is yeah. the thing. So if you listen, we'll send you a link back to, um, uh, a month or six weeks ago or so we had, um, a, a, an episode with, uh, Huda El Sharif, uh, who's a, a PhD, a, sorry, a doctor now, um, in, yeah. um, who, whose research is focused on adaptive comfort theory. And that in the context of passive house and looking at it in the context of cooling climates, like she's from Sudan and, uh, the physiological responses that you undergo if you're living in a climate like that, or, in, you know, and even in a climate like where you are, um, where there are periods of time where you, if you're allowing yourself to be exposed to higher temperatures outside, for instance, there are physiological responses that kick in, which mean that you are able to accept higher temperatures, uh, within yeah. reason. You know, um, yeah. it, on the other hand, if you're in a cooling climate like um, 
you know, we're talking about Dubai or whatever, where people expect everything to be 19 degrees air conditioned inside, and they stay inside either in a car or in a building all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, or at least rather the people who can afford to, not the people who keep everything going. You have no adaptive comfort, uh, no ability to kind of respond. So, so I haven't seen, in fairness, Huda, I should really talk to her because she's quite brilliant about how it would work in a context like this, you know, where you have low, small, shortened periods of a few weeks, maybe where, where you have, where you, where you have to respond. But but it's you know, it is it is a real thing, and, and you'll find the people uh, Andy Simmons who uh, who worked with her on that, the CEO of the Association of the Association for Environment Conscious Building. He talked about working on a project in Tanzania where he was um, up in the roof space in this uh, this uh, low energy building that he was working on. An Englishman in short shirt, in shorts and short sleeve shirt, uh, in twenty six degrees or so heat, I think it was, and the roof space, sweating like a pig. While these ta- this Tanzanian guy in a suit was there, uh, effortlessly going around the place, you know, uh, unaffected, you know. So yeah. it's a real thing, yeah. But you train the body out of being able to, in the same way you train, like your body is perpetually in training. That is yeah. what it is. Such is the nature of exercise. But it depends so, on the health of the person, uh, the yeah, age yeah. Of the person, and it and and I think uh, my understanding, uh, limited as it is of adaptive comfort theory, is that it applies more to hot weather than to cold weather, um, and uh, um, and I don't know how how it applies to these kind of short periods if you're in a in a in a in a, in a, in a country that doesn't normally have those kinds of temperatures and you have a yeah. period of a couple of weeks, you know. I think it it's interesting the notions of comfort. I, I think it was Bill Borders who was talking about it. I can't remember whether it was on the episode that we had with him or or not, where oh it was in a presentation he shared with us. That was it. I think about how notions of comfort. People expect to be comfortable now. Like, you know, within the last 70 years, people have come to expect to be comfortable at home in a way they never used to ever. Mm-hmm. in all of human history prior mm-hmm. to that mm-hmm. because it just wasn't possible and you know perhaps this is a point at which we should be it's not to say you're going to be checking your privilege on this but like for the sake of the planet perhaps we got to wear it a little bit well Unless it's hard here though because you know uh you're creating the, uh, a gap here that can allow, allow an awful lot of shite through in terms of people uh, making apologies for terrible buildings well, I'm, I'm, well, I mean, worse than that. I mean, you could be talking comfort apartheid, where only the rich can ever be comfortable in their homes. The poor better just be, get better at being resilient. I, you know, this this notion that you're you're right. What variance is tolerable in a passive home? But wh- where I think the solution lies for me is that because it's so predictable, you know, it's a question of spending a little bit more money. So for us, it was a question of, um, okay, if we do, if we do not want to have that, that overheating, then, then shading devices are required, but there are solutions. There are technical solutions to allow you to have a high degree of thermal comfort in these passive homes, a very precise degree of thermal comfort. And they're, they're, they just cost more money. Like earth tubes are one of my favorites. I, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with those, but that, yeah, yeah. those are the, the preheating tubes that run around before the, the, the perimeter of the foundation before they go into the HRV and they were explain to Dan because Dan may not have yeah. had before Dan is he's very yeah. wide-eyed yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so, I mean yeah. talk slowly yeah. to him as well in small words yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, 
it's a way of tempering, uh, of bringing up the temperature of the supply air for your ventilation system through uh, the fact that it, at a lower level, if you're in your foundations, if you, for instance, you know, if you, if you have earth tubes there, you're picking up uh, a temperature at that level and boosting boosting the air temperature before it comes in. Um, although yeah. I know there have been, so, I don't know how much truth there is in this, but there have been some stories from the continent of um, uh, humidity problems with buildings with earth tubes, I think. I don't know if that's what you'd if you could if that's something you you could anticipate, Cedric, or not. I have heard of that. Uh, this is one of the, some of the people that are detractors of earth tubes say that they they gather moisture in them and then you get mold and and so forth that grows. But with if they are sloped and drained properly, I don't see it as being an issue. They um, I think it's very manageable. Um, but what yeah. they do do because the, the you know the earth's temperature on average is 10 degrees celsius where we live in the summertime they're a way of providing extremely efficient uh cooling uh that costs basically nothing to a home and so they're yeah. they're a way of uh there are th- those kind of solutions they're, i mean they're, we're talking about very small incremental costs but they they can provide a higher degree of thermal comfort so what I really love about the PHPP is that, I mean, I my, I myself chose not to do that. And so we have to deal with a few weeks of higher temperatures than normal, higher than 21 degrees Celsius. It, those, are, those are easily solved and wonderfully solved. I mean, another, another easy solution would be to connect a heat pump to your HRV. The heat pump is a very efficient way of heating and cooling a home. And, and that's, that's another way of doing it as well. I mean, it costs more money and it has to be part of your energy, um, your energy calculations for the home. But that's again, another, another solution that can provide for that degree of comfort. I, there's a study we, I referenced a few times on, on the podcast, uh, of an overheating building in London, which had external blinds and internal blinds fitted in some rooms, all identical rooms, um, and, uh, and one without, without, uh, any, any blinds just to kind of, you know, and mon- monitor in an unheated, unoccupied building what the temperatures were achieving. And we, it, it was achieving extraordinary temperatures. This building, uh, as I've said before, is, uh, uh, 47 and a half degrees operative temperatures, um, for the, for the room without any shade during a, a hot spell, like a heat wave, a prolonged heat wave where, wow. where yeah, air temperature outside the building peaked at just under 29. But uh, the one with external Venetians fitted peaked at 29 degrees, I think, uh, or just under, yeah. what was, you know, still overheating, but, but not going to kill you overheating. Uh, yeah. And the one with internal Venetians peaked at, I think, 32, 33 or something, which I hadn't expected yeah. it to be that good. Uh, you know, it was, it was, mm. it was in the low 30s anyway. Um, so it's still, absolutely uncomfortable and unacceptable at those levels but the point is that you're not getting anywhere near those temperatures anyway and it might be an internal blind uh, could be more effective uh than uh, it could be enough in a situation like that i don't yeah. know I don't, yeah yeah that's but overall though the um i mean apart we're, we're sort of fixating on on the two weeks of the year that it might be slightly uncomfortable but really nobody minds and and having lived in the home now for a few years, it's it's really not an issue. We we know to expect it, and it's become part of our routine. Yes, I can solve it, 
and I probably will solve it. But you know, it what I find just backing up a little bit in the conversation, I I never really told the story of of our house and and how it was designed. And the the lesson for me, uh, my wife and I had uh, built a couple of houses, and then we we sold them, and then we wanted to build this house, a passive house. And I convinced her that this was going to be something we needed to do. And so I, I set about designing it, and it took me three months, and I came up with a very square box in the middle of this gorgeous sloping riverside waterfront property and i came up with this very efficient engineered idea and so because i had sort of abandoned what i thought were antiquated ways of doing architecture and i wanted a new way of designing a new way of thinking and building and so i i said well it's got to have a low surface area to volume ratio and that's the way it is right and and so i I show this to to my wife, who is quite aesthetically attuned. She's a graphic designer, and and it's her home, right? And, and I said, "Do you, what do you think? This is the design. This is the passive house." And she and she was horrified. She she said, "You, we are not going to live in that." And essentially, she said, "I I need to hire another architect to design this house for me." <laughs> Is it on your site, by the way, Cedric? Because I'm, I'm looking at uh, it's. It's not. It's not. We're do, we've just taken some photos of it. It'll be on there pretty soon. Uh, they it will be up actually by the end of this week. We'll have some photos of it posted on our site. And what, um, what would it be called uh, for anyone looking who wants to sneak? Oh, around? it'll be and uh, the Nelson. Nelson is the name of the street. So Nelson Passive House. Okay, um, that's what we'll call it. But so I very quickly you know you have to these are panicky situations as a husband as an, and an architect right and so i i kind of like was she was right um i had misled myself i had so i said okay let's stop what we're what i was doing i said look on my website what what do you like of all of those things she's like what appeals to you and she said well i like that one it's a courtyard house and it it kind of opens to the view and it's it's quite it feels kind of um, like it's well integrated into the landscape. Like I can walk out from many levels into a sloping lot. And I feel like, um, that worked with the land. So three hours later, I'd taken the model of that house and, and, and put it onto, onto our property with some modifications. And I said, well, how does that look? And she said, that's getting there. And so from there, designed the home, laid it all out. And, and essentially I let go of my ideals as the things that I was quite excited about and which was passive house, passive house principles and all the things that came along with that sustainability. And so to design the house exactly how she wanted. And she was my client, essentially. We got through that and then, you know, nagging sort of things in the back of your gnawing away at me were like, well, I can't, I have to do something to make this work. And so I got up a few weekends very early and and started to just model it in PHPP. Um, now we use um, very quick modeling, uh, PHPP modeling um, with SketchUp. We can we can model the houses almost instantly. But back then, I had to do using yeah the design yeah. PH. Yeah, we use that as one of our tools. Uh, great tool, by the way. It's much easier to do it now than it was back then. But anyway, putting it into the PHPP. I, I saw that we were we were at about 30 um, kilowatt hours per meter squared annually based upon traditional, you know, good air tightness, but traditional uh, envelope and so forth. And so by just nuancing things, we got it down to 14 
and then it was i then it had to be costed and so forth but then it was a lesson for me that the first and foremost thing with any design is the design it, we cannot live yeah. in homes that are engineered we cannot live in engineered when i say engineering i'm using it in the sort of pejorative sense but what i think you understand what i mean it's you can't put engineering first it has to be human beings first and that was the no you can't have the view the north facing view because it's a passive house you know yeah <laughs> yeah your face your yeah. house is, is you managed to get planning permission on uh you know next to the giant's causeway but no <laughs> <laughs> No, you can't look at it. Yeah, so I found it very very interesting was that everything that we believe in as as designers and architects still holds true. It still can work. The the principles that drive us forward and the aesthetics that drive us forward uh, can be adapted to this way of thinking. So it's Passive House for me is the second thing that we do. It's not the first thing. The first thing is designing something that works and is beautiful. Yeah, it was a good lesson. And I, you know, I've carried that through and we still, we still approach things in, in, we still are architects. We still love, we get excited about beautiful things and things that, that our clients will love to live in. But we just add that layer on top of um, adapting them to the standard. But do you think that you just you do the design entirely? Surely you don't do the design entirely separate from those concerns, and then retrofit yeah. in the passive house. No. You know, I mean, no, the I'm great, simplifying it. Yeah, surely yeah. great architecture is about, and any great art is, is is in some ways it's about how you embrace restrictions like that, um, and and still produce something wonderful. You know, and yeah. On that note, I'm afraid, fellas, I think it's probably time to wrap up because yeah. <laughs> Jesus, we're an hour and a half in. It's thank uh, you. Thank you both. That was great. It's been yeah. a really interesting conversation. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. We should keep in touch. And 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 for the record, I've I've listened to as many of your podcasts as I could since the last time Dan and I had the conversation. And so it's I, I love what you are both doing. It's it's so important. I I hope I have been at least somewhat sensible today. My I my ambition. Sensible is... Canadian? What? Who ever heard of a sensible Canadian? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. It's yeah. him that it's... should be apologizing. He's Canadian. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry you insulted me. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. it's been great. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm, I, I'd ask our, our listeners to check out your website because your work is is lovely, you know. Um, and uh, Thank you. And it's, it's important that we're able to show these kinds of examples off, you know. Uh, well, yeah, I'll do the sign off. All right. Thank you for joining us. Uh, yeah. Hope you've enjoyed it uh, as, as much as we evidently have. I've been lost track of the time. Um, yeah. All right, so everyone, join ACAN, join the AECB, join the IGBC. Ladies out there, check her own space on Facebook or on the internet. Check out Passive House Plus magazine. Um, if you want to talk to us about any of this stuff, uh, you can find our details in the show notes. We'll have all of Patrick's details in the show notes as well. Patrick's details? We'll have all of Cedric's details in the show notes. Oh, God, your brain oh, is really... Patrick. Yeah, man, done. <laughs> It's, um, it's so, it's, so hang on is your name pronounced because we said it's the start <laughs> of it, is it pronounced cedric cedric or patrick yeah <laughs> wow. cedric yeah thank you um, for asking yeah <laughs> yeah i don't know where that came from that's very strange um anyway right yeah if you get some out of this you probably know someone else who will as well so please share it with them and if you wouldn't mind reviewing it five star rating 
nothing else will do for the algorithm. So please, if you could uh, support us in feeding it. Yeah, I think that's it for now. Anything yeah. Anything you've got to shout about, Jeff? No, Cedric, there's nothing else you you specifically want to plug. You got anything to plug? Uh, no. I, I was curious about the adaptive comfort um, uh, um, session that you had talked about. I think her name was Huda. Huda, um, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we'll Is share the episode on... with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, all, do it's that, all up there. Great. Yeah. yeah, it was a really good one. Anyway, right. Thank you for joining us. Um, we'll sign off. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Cool. Cool.